Well, as we get ready to jump in today, let me first of all give you a quick little update. I appreciate so many people praying for me. Those of you that may not know, I've kind of been moving a little slow lately because I had a little injury playing pickleball, of all things. But uh, went went in, and a lot of people have been asking what I found out this week. Uh, it's all good news, and uh, no surgery needed, just some physical therapy, and I've already started on that, and am actually making a lot faster progress than I expected. So I'm very excited for that, and feel like God is definitely answering some prayers. So thank you for your prayer support there. Uh, today we jump into a new series, and you know, I'm just reminded that sometimes it's the story behind the story. That is really the most interesting. You know, the, the one that maybe you haven't heard. And I heard one this week that I was not familiar with. Most of you probably know the movie series Rocky, right? Remember Rocky had, there was the original Rocky, there were five uh, sequels after that, and then there were three spinoffs of Creed that came out of that as well. Um, to date, it has grossed, all of those together have grossed around $1.7 billion, so it's been incredibly successful. What you may not know is how it all got started, and Sylvester Stallone, who of course starred in the original movies, um, wrote the script for this, but at the time, he was a struggling young actor. He had had a couple of roles, but uh, was really having a hard time. He had $106 in the bank. And about that time, uh, he went to see Muhammad Ali fight a guy named Chuck Wepner, who was pretty much a, an unknown, washed-up fighter. Most people thought he didn't belong in the same ring with the greatest fighter of all time. And yet, Wepner went 15 rounds with him. He actually ended up losing the fight, but he's one of only four fighters to knock Ali down during that fight. And Stallone is watching this and is so inspired by this story of this washed-up fighter that almost beats the, the greatest of all time that he, in three days, wrote a 90-page script of Rocky that would form the basis of that. Took that script uh, with him when he had a, uh, an audition. Didn't realize that this part he was auditioning for wasn't a good fit, but he told the producer, hey, I've written the script. Explain what it was. The guy was interested. He said, bring it back to me, which he did. And they offered him $360,000 for the Rocky script with one condition. And that is that Sylvester Stallone would not play the leading role of Rocky Balboa. They wanted his script. They didn't want him. And can you imagine this? You know, $106 in the bank. You're offered $360,000 for a script. And he turned it down. And he, he said uh, to himself, you know, he was, he was just kind of thinking back through that. And he said, you know what? You've got this poverty thing down. You don't need much to live on. And so he held out for a little bit and eventually uh, signed a, a deal with United Artists. He sold the script to them for $250,000, was paid $35,000. And that was on the condition that he would be allowed to play the leading role. 35000 for the starring role was given what they call 10 points on whatever the film made. So he ended up making about $2.5 off that first Rocky. So it did fairly well. There's a lot more to the story you can dig into if you're interested in it. Uh, but I just share that to say sometimes it's the story behind the story that really you know, helps us understand and appreciate what's going on. That's the goal for the next four weeks As we jump into Christmas. Everybody knows the Christmas story, right? You've heard this before. But I want us to look at some things that led up to the Christmas story, the story behind the story, specifically some of the Old Testament prophecy in the book of Isaiah that led to the coming of Christ. Because Christmas 
is about so much more than a baby being born in a manger. I mean, in fact, Christmas is about a, a Savior coming to eventually die for us. With, Christmas doesn't really mean anything apart from Good Friday and Easter. I mean, that's the whole point. And none of this happened on a whim. You know, it wasn't like all of a sudden God just decided, you know, I think, uh, I think I'll send my son. Now, this was the plan from the very beginning. You go back to the book of Genesis. I mean, look at when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the book of Genesis. And uh, they're kicked out of the garden. But, and, and he's pronouncing a curse on everybody. But when he, what he says to the serpent, uh, he's talking about this enmity that will be between him and the man. And he talks about the seed of Adam. And he says, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. So from the very beginning, there was this prophecy of the seed of Adam that would come and destroy the work of Satan, uh, talking about the coming of the Messiah. And then all throughout the Old Testament, there's prophecy after prophecy about the coming of Jesus. And then uh, you get into the book of Isaiah. And that's where I want to spend our time. We're, we're calling this series Unwrapping Christmas because I think there are some things that we can unwrap and, and see uh, that maybe give us some, hopefully some fresh insights uh, into the coming of Christ at, at Christmas time. But in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, I want us to for, focus on four different prophecies uh, that he gave about the, the coming of the Messiah. Now, a little bit about Isaiah. He prophesied to the nation of Judah from 739 to 681 B.C. Now, by this time, if you know something about your Old Testament history, you may remember that the Jewish people had become divided. There was the northern kingdom or the kingdom of Israel. There was the southern kingdom or the kingdom of Judah. Uh, Isaiah is primarily speaking to the southern kingdom. And this is somewhat similar. We just came off out of the study of the book of Revelation. One of the things I said repeatedly all these plagues and things that we see happening in the book of Revelation are God's attempt to get the attention of people to draw their hearts back to him. Isaiah is doing the same thing. God is pronouncing judgment and saying this is what's going to happen if you don't repent. And the goal is that it would draw people's hearts back to him. And the, the heart of the, the prophecy that we're going to be in today is one that you'll be very familiar with. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. You've heard that before, right? Um, maybe you're not quite as familiar with the whole story leading up to that. And so we'll jump ahead to Matthew chapter 1 later on. But first, let's dive into Isaiah 7. If you want to open there with me, Isaiah 7. Let's start with 1 through 9. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised, an evil, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it, says the Lord God. 
Now listen to this. He told him, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So verse 1, we see that Ahaz is the king of Judah at this time. He's the grandson of Uzziah. Uh, Uzziah was one of the better kings of Judah. He, he was a good king. He kind of didn't end so well at the end of his life. He fell away a bit, but generally regarded as a fairly good king. Ahaz, on the other hand, not at all. He is in constant rebellion against God, and we'll see part of that in this passage here today. Um, verse 1 says that Rezin, who is the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, that these two united forces, and they plan to attack Judah. And it says that when the king heard this, when Ahaz and the rest of the people heard this, that their hearts shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. That's quite a visual, isn't it? And you just kind of get this picture. They're terrified of these kings coming against them and attacking them. And so God sends Isaiah to the king to comfort him. He sends Isaiah to say, look, it's not going to happen. This is not going to come to pass. I'm going to protect you. It's interesting to me, a little aside here, but in verse 3, look at the detail of just the conversations God would have with his prophets. But verse 3, go to meet Ahaz, and then it says, you will find him at the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. I mean, you talk about specific instruction, right? God speaking to Isaiah and saying, this is exactly where I want you to go to find him. And when you get there, here's the message that I want you to give him. Verse 4, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. I wonder if anybody needs to hear that today. Let me just read that again. Because this could be God's message for some of us today as well. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint. I don't know what situation you might be dealing with, but maybe it feels similar to being ganged up on. Maybe you feel like everything is against you, as Ahaz felt here. These two nations are going to combine forces to attack him. Maybe there's something going on in your life that's creating a lot of anxiety. Maybe some things in your life that just aren't fair and are not right. And you're having to deal with it, and it feels like everything is stacked against you. That's the way Ahaz felt, and yet God gave him this message. And I just want to remind you of this today. And I know what we're reading here in the Old Testament, pre-Jesus and all that, but we're on the other side of the cross now. So for those of us that know Christ, that have a relationship with him, can I just remind you that God is for you? God uh, does have good plans for you. It doesn't always feel like it. It doesn't always seem that way because there are difficulties. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We are going to go through difficult things. Sometimes it's hard to believe, and we need to remind ourselves God is indeed good. And He does have our best interest at heart. You know, I was just thinking back to a lot long, uh, long time ago, growing up years, of my parents who were wonderful parents and, and still are, and uh, were, were very kind and very gracious toward me. But like any other child, there were times where I felt like, man, they just have it out for me, you know? They, they, just, they just want to make my life miserable. They're not for me. Anybody remember feeling that way? Teenagers, you with me? Do you ever feel that way right now? Like my parents, you know, they just, 
They just have it out for me. We've all been there, right? Whether you're there right now, whether you're maybe now it's, you know, a little bit different stage of life, but we can relate to that. And being on the other side of that, I know my kids felt the same way. They told us that, I'm sure, a few times and felt like, you know, we just had it out for them. And I have a little different perspective now being on the other side of that and seeing things from, you know, a, a different point of view. And I'm sure, I'm absolutely positive that, that our decisions as parents were not always the right decisions. But I'm also positive that the goal always was we want what's best for our kids. You know, they may not see it at the time. Our desire, because we're seeing things from a different perspective, we're going to make some decisions that may not, they may look at it and say, what in the world are you doing? You ever feel that way with God? It's like, God, I, <laughs> okay, I, I, you tell me that you love me, you tell me that, that you're for me, but this doesn't make sense to me right now. And if, and if it doesn't make sense to you right now, that's okay. God does have a different perspective. He does see things differently than we do, and we don't always understand it. But the bottom line is that we have to trust God, and Ahab didn't. But look at, at, at verse 7 when God says, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. He's telling him, this is not going to happen. What you are so afraid of is not going to come to pass. I just want you to trust me. But the problem with Ahaz was he didn't trust. He didn't have faith. Look at the end of verse 9. This, this is a, a framing verse here. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Can I just, man, that'll preach right there. You just, if we can't stand firm in our faith, then, then what, what is our foundation, right? What, what kind of firm footing are we going to have if it's not in who God is? And Ahaz was not firm in his faith. Let's keep reading, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So what God is saying here, and let me just remind you of a truth that we talked about this when we were in the book of Revelation. When we're looking at prophecy... There is an immediate fulfillment, something that often is taking place right in the immediate context of when it is spoken, and there's a future fulfillment. We're going to talk about both of those. So the immediate fulfillment in Isaiah was, he said, and it's translated here, this virgin shall give birth. That word can also mean a young woman. Uh, certainly it means virgin in the coming of Jesus. We'll talk about that in a minute, but here in this context, it would have been fulfilled in its immediate um, uh, fulfillment by a young woman giving birth and it says this woman's going to give birth to a child they're going to name him Emmanuel which means God with us and before the child's even old enough to know the difference between right and wrong these, these nations that you fear are going to be done away with so in other words what he's saying is in very short order I'm going to take care of those nations that you fear and you're not going to have anything to worry about but Ahaz doesn't believe him and God knows that Ahaz doesn't believe him. And he, this is an incredible act of grace 
that as far as I can tell, is not recorded elsewhere in Scripture. Maybe you can find one and, and tell me about it. I love, I love to learn because I'm not 100% sure of this, but I have not found another place in Scripture where God invites someone and says, I want you to ask for a sign from me. Now, I can think of places where God granted signs. I can think of, for example, um, Ahaz's grandson, Hezekiah. Hezekiah became ill, and God says, you're not going to die. He was going to die, but he said, you're not going to die. And he asked for a sign, and the sign was he made a shadow go back ten steps. And I can think of, you know, the, the most famous one perhaps is Gideon. You know, when God's going to use him to deliver his people, and his sign was, he said, let the, the fleece that I put out be wet, but the, the ground around it be dry. And then he asked the other way around, let the fleece be dry and the ground around it wet. And God granted in his grace, he granted those signs. Um, I can't think of another example where God invited someone to ask for a sign. Now, I, I think of one example where God said, test me in this. And many of you know exactly where that is, Malachi 3, when, when God is telling him, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. And he said, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. If you'll trust me uh, by, by your, um, in your finances and your giving, see if I won't provide for you. That's, that's the only other one I can think of where God invites some type of, of a test. And in this case, he says, ask for a sign. It's incredibly gracious of God to extend this invitation to Ahaz without being asked, how does Ahaz respond? He says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to ask for a sign. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask. And then he goes all spiritual on him. And I will not put the Lord to the test. Whatever. Right? He's, he, I mean, he's going to use this spiritual language. Now, granted, this sounds similar to Deuteronomy 6.16, which is what Jesus quoted when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Remember, Jesus was tempted, and he would quote Scripture. And when he was tempted by Satan to come up to the pinnacle of the temple and to throw himself off, and Satan even quoted a verse of him, and God won't let your foot strike a stone and all that. And Jesus' response to Satan was, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16. It sounds real similar. I will not put the Lord my God to the test. You know, I'm being all spiritual here. He's not being spiritual. What he's doing is he's refusing to exercise faith. Because I believe that if Ahaz asked for a sign and God granted a sign, he would feel obligated to trust God. He didn't want to trust God. He didn't want to go down God's path. He had a plan already. His plan was he's going to the Assyrians and he's going to ask for them to defend them. And he did. And he made this pact with them. See, Ahaz had a plan that didn't include God's plan. You ever been there? You have a plan? And God says, I want to take you this direction. And, and quite honestly, our answer is no thank you. I think I'll go my way. That's what's happening here with Ahaz. He's refusing to have faith. Now, let me just say this too. That there is a difference between refusing to have faith and struggling to have faith. Are you, you with me on this? Like when, when you're just struggling to believe. You're trying to get there and it's like, you know, I, I want to believe, but I'm having a hard time. Um, Mark chapter 9 is a great place to go and a great scripture to pray to God regularly because that tells the story of a man who had a child who was demon-possessed. The disciples couldn't drive it out. They bring it to Jesus. Jesus says, how long has it been this way? Um, the, the father says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus responds, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Now listen to the guy's response. Mark 9, 24 says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. 
That's a great prayer. When you're struggling to believe, to say, I want to believe. I'm trying to believe. I do believe, but help me with my doubt. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's not the situation that Ahaz is in. So he, he won't ask for a sign, and God says, then fine, I'll give you one. And the sign is, verse 14, the virgin will give birth um, to the child. Now that leads us to the fulfillment of that in the New Testament. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And let's see how this story and this prophecy from Isaiah plays into the coming of Christ. Verse 18, Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This prophecy from Isaiah 714 is a pivotal part of the coming of Jesus. And in this case, we said before, and some people have sometimes pointed to say, oh, that word virgin can mean a young woman. And so Mary wasn't really a virgin. Can we really believe in the virgin birth? Let me tell you why the virgin birth is a critical part of our salvation story. And it's really clear. You read Matthew 1. How many different times does it make it really clear that this is conceived of the Holy Spirit? And it even says in verse 25 that Joseph didn't have any union with his wife until after the child was born. So it's really clear that, that Mary was indeed a virgin, that the child uh, Jesus was conceived through the Holy Spirit. But why does that matter so much? You go to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 talks about how sin is passed down through Adam. So you're going all the way back to Adam when, when sin entered into the human race. It is passed down through the seed of the father. To every subsequent generation, every human being has an earthly father, except for one, except for Jesus. That means that every one of us has that sin gene passed on to us. If Jesus were not born of a virgin, then he would have had the same sinful nature that every one of us has. If Jesus had the same sinful nature that we have, he would not have been able to live a sinless life. If Jesus had not lived a sinless life, he would not have been qualified to become our substitute for sin. He would have died to pay for his own sins, not for ours. The fact that Jesus was sinless is what qualified him to die for us. In Hebrews, it talks about how he entered the most holy place, not by the blood of goats and bulls, which is what they did in the Old Testament, but it said by the shedding of his own blood, a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus was qualified to give himself as a once-for-all sacrifice because he was sinless. His sinlessness ties back to his virgin birth because he, he was born 100% human, which is remarkable, right? Mind-blowing to think that God would become a man. 100% human, also 100% God. It's what we call the hypostatic union. Fully God and fully man in one person. Um, and Jesus lived this life 
of perfection. Now, I want to get back to the story and look at the response that Joseph had once he found out what was going on. His initial response is predictable. It says that he wanted to divorce his wife. By the way, it says divorce her quietly. We'll come back to that in, in just a moment. What are you going to think if your wife, and it is wife by this point, because when you're betrothed, you're legally married, even though they hadn't come together and had a union yet. Um, they're, they're married. What do you think if you find out your wife is pregnant and you know that you have not been with her? Think the same thing anybody else would think. And Joseph's plan was, I'm going to divorce her quietly, which speaks to his character because it was, by the Old Testament law, she could have been stoned to death for adultery. Or, at the very least, he could have shamed her publicly. But he didn't plan to do any of that. He planned to divorce her quietly. But then an angel appears to him in a dream. And God speaks to him. So, so God sends the prophet Isaiah to speak to Ahaz. He sends an angel to speak to Joseph. But both of them get a message from God. And I want you to notice the difference between the way the two of them respond to that message. Ahaz, lack of faith. I'm not even going to ask God for a sign. Look at Joseph, verse 24. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. You see, his response was one of faith. And Joseph was willing to take this, this woman home. He was willing to take this child and to raise the child as his own. And it says they gave him the name Jesus because he was to save his people from their sins. It's the, the Hebrew name is Joshua, which means God is salvation. But let's take just the last couple of minutes we have to talk about the other name of Jesus that is given to us in the book of Isaiah, and that is the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Does everybody here have somebody in your life that just their presence with you, especially during a difficult season, is, helps, makes you feel better? Does everybody have somebody like that? They don't necessarily have to, you don't have to be doing something special, you don't have to say the right thing. It's like just knowing that that person is with you makes all the difference. You know that God is that for those of us that know him personally. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And as important as that person in your life or those people in your life are, they're not going to be with you all the time. But that's not true of God. You know, when we become a child of God, meaning not just that, that God created us, and I know God created everybody, but I'm talking about what Jesus described in terms of being born again. He said, unless you're, you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. That means that there has to come a point where we are reborn spiritually. We have to celebrate earlier through baptism. The old way of life being put to death, we have new life in Christ. That's rebirth. When you are reborn spiritually, at that point in time, you have the presence of Emmanuel who comes to live inside of you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. That means that God is with us all the time. And can I just tell you that from my own life and, and walking through very difficult in the last few years, been, been a difficult season for us, but walking through those times, it's the presence of Emmanuel. It's, it's Jesus being with us through those things that makes all the difference. And I know you have, so many of you have a story similar to that. Like you're, you're going through this and you weren't sure how you were going to make it, but, but God with us is what has pulled you through. Now, quite honestly, for some of you, you might hear that and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
doesn't make any sense because this is one of those things that's kind of hard to explain the presence of God with you until you've experienced it. But that's what I want you to know today. I want you to know the presence of Emmanuel, God with us. Because there is so much comfort. There's so much peace that comes from knowing that, that God is with us. That he walks with us through whatever season of life we may be going through. Guys, if you don't have that in your life right now, I mean, my, my heart just goes out to you. I want you to know the presence of Emmanuel. I want you to know the God who came to walk alongside you through whatever you may be going through in your life. But here's the thing. We have to choose how we are going to respond. My encouragement for you today is to respond in faith. We have two very clear examples here. One in Ahaz who said, no, thank you, God. I'm not even going to ask you for a sign. I'm just going to go my own way. And we have Joseph that says he was willing to do exactly what God led him to do. My question for you today is simply this. Are you going to respond like Ahaz? Or are you going to respond like Joseph? Let's pray. Lord, I pray today, just with everything in me, that we respond in faith to you today. Lord Jesus, you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. You walk with us through the ups and the downs. Lord, in everything in our lives, I don't know what I would have done without you being there. So thank you for that. And I pray that every one of us, Lord, that's here in the room and those of us that are joining online, Lord, please allow us to surrender our hearts fully to you in faith today. In your precious name we pray. Amen.